Welcome to Cloudy with a Chance of Trust, a podcast for digital transformation leaders where we discuss the latest cyber attack issues, enterprise security strategies, and current security events so that you can successfully accelerate network and security transformation. And now here's what's on our mind this week. Hey, everybody. Thanks for joining us again. Pam and I have a special guest today, our colleague, Danny Connolly, who is CISO for the Americas and public sector here at Zscaler and a former deputy CISO for the CDC. Danny, thank you so much for joining us. Thanks, Lisa, Pam, for having me today. Excited to talk to you about this. We're excited about it, too. Can you give us a little bit of information about your background and about your role at Zscaler today? Absolutely. So before I came to Zscaler uh, about uh, six, now eight months ago, I was the associate CISO for operations at CDC and then the deputy CISO, basically responsible for all security operational capabilities to include things like incident response, forensics, boundary protections, vulnerability management, basically all the operational security capabilities needed to have effective enterprise security. So I, I definitely understand how difficult it is to be on the front lines uh, or a cybersecurity professional responding to today's threats and happy to uh, join Zscaler and hoping I could help other customers uh, understand the value propositions of Zscaler. Yeah, that's a lot of hats you were wearing. And I'm sure that in that role, you bumped into the term zero trust a lot because it seems like that buzzword is really taking off in government the same as it is in industry. When we think about public sector, what does zero trust really mean there? Is it the same as private sector? Are there specific implications or concerns? To me, zero trust is the same concepts that we've been trying to implement for the last 10 years. Things like default deny, least privilege. The difference is for the last 10 years, we were reliant on firewall technologies or using VLANs, ACLs to limit access, and it really wasn't manageable. So we didn't have the right tool sets. So to me, now with technologies uh, like Zscaler, it really makes it a lot easier to embrace zero trust. In the public sector, at least, the executive order that was released earlier this year really has driven prescribed federal agencies to come up with their zero trust architecture plans. And, and that really points to NIST 800-207, the zero trust architecture, and ties into TIC 3.0, the TIC 3.0 framework as well. So while I think there still is a lot of interpretation of what it means to agencies, ultimately that executive order pushed agencies to, to follow NIST 800-207. So I think there's a lot of new initiatives that were kicked off by that executive order. There's some new guidance from NIST. The 800-207 draft predates the executive order. And then there's a cybersecurity guidance for administrators around zero trust. Do you feel like agencies right now have really had a chance to absorb that new guidance or are we still sort of in an exploratory mode on figuring out what this all means? I think it depends on the agencies. The more mature agencies don't really have that cybersecurity gaps shortage or have been kind of on this journey, you know, over the last decade, they really probably embrace it and are moving a lot faster than the agencies that are less mature in the cyber side. So yeah, definitely a, a mixed bag. But I do see that at least all the agencies that I've been talking to understand the value and understand the opportunity that it's finally time to make that shift and, and ditch the old way of doing business. For those of the audience uh, listening who may not be familiar with NIST, because NIST is not potentially, some organizations may not know what it is. What is NIST and how does it apply? So NIST, the National Institute for Standards and Technology, is actually a, a, an agency or a subcomponent of commerce. 
But basically, they're the governing body that puts out standards that include cybersecurity guidance. So federal agencies really look to NIST guidance when they're deploying technologies or solutions to do it in a secure way. Does that help? Yeah, it does. I think that some of the best zero trust papers that I've read have come out of NIST recently because, you know, you get a lot of white papers from analysts and they're market focused. You get a lot of white papers from vendors and they're solution focused. But what NIST did for zero trust was really up-leveled it to the layer of what are the key tenets of zero trust? What are the requirements? What are the components? What are the common use cases? That document is both a crash course in what it means today, but it's also comprehensively applicable regardless of how you come to zero trust. Absolutely. And, and again, on its own or in close partnership with CISA, you know, the TIC 3.0 guidance really aligns with that 800-207 document. So I think NIST and CISA really partnered together to really put out an achievable approach to getting to zero trust. Danny, so if you look at your previous role, what were some of the biggest challenges you encountered prior to moving to zero trust? And if, if you can kind of touch on that, and, and what did you find on your journey to zero trust relative to those challenges? I would say using technology, what I say is legacy technologies, but really what we've all used like firewalls, ACLs, VLANs to try to segment host-to-host communications at the network layer, but apply it to the application layer it's not manageable. So I, I ran our firewall team and anytime a, an application owner or system owner would need to communicate out to the internet or to communicate to another internal enclave, they would have to submit a change request with the ports needed for that application to function. It's inevitable the system owner doesn't understand application enough to know the ports that are needed. So there was a lot of time wasted on figuring out what was needed. And then by the time the firewall change was implemented, That application also had to communicate with core directory services and other enterprise technologies. So by the time it was implemented, you had that application being able to communicate from here to there, but there was a wide open door or pathway that an attacker could really hop through. So in my opinion, that was all because of the technologies that we were using and deployed. Not that we had a better solution at the time. That's all what we, what we grew up with, right? It, it just wasn't manageable and it's not manageable to, to use that approach. So, th- so that's really what I see as the biggest challenge. And not, not many folks really understand that unless they're in that firewall manager hot seat and, and actually doing it. That's no different whether you're public sector, private sector, that's just a general issue most are encountering. Was there anything different in your previous role from a public sector to the private sector that you're finding now because you're talking to so many customers, peers, you know, executives on a daily basis in this role? Are you finding anything different from the public sector to the private sector that is kind of come to your mind in, in your new role? Just the priorities for publicly traded companies with boards and really have, <laughs> have to make a profit they're able to move a lot faster because they know what it means to have a a ransomware event or a big cyber breach. Their business is at risk where on the um, federal side, if there's a breach, it's not good. And nobody wants to have that. We work towards curing the environment the best we can, but it's just, it doesn't move as fast. It doesn't seem like there is the same, same level of intensity or prioritization for cybersecurity, but I think that's changing. I mean, at least over the last 12 years since my time at CDC, when I started there, 
by the time I left, that had changed quite a bit. And I think things like the executive order and the other mandates that have recently come out, I think that's really helping prioritize cybersecurity across the government. You know, it's interesting. One of the things, you know, I found too is it's the company reputation. It's brand reputation that also plays in the private sector. Let's face it. The government is the government. And if the brand is is tainted, well, it's the government, right? It's not going anywhere. But from a brand reputation, it does taint the consumer's taste for that brand or that company. And, And that's what I've kind of found to what in my mind, I think is kind of different relative to your point about priorities, because I do see a very different set of priorities and also a sense of urgency, the urgency from the private sector to make sure it's not tainting their brand or affecting, to your point, the sales margin. I think we're starting to see some of that urgency driven by the outside forces that do affect the public sector, though, the cybersecurity EO, but also the much wider prevalence of nation state attackers and advanced persistent threats that are specifically targeting the government. We've already had these initiatives around IT modernization. How can adopting zero trust architectures help federal agencies, help the public sector in general to respond to some of these pressures? Absolutely. Adopting a zero trust architecture means you have to use modernized cybersecurity capabilities modernized cybersecurity capabilities make implementing zero trust easier for those frontline defenders. So just by that, it helps support IT modernization efforts at an organization, right? Whether that be standing up a new cloud service or IaaS or SaaS, PaaS, any of those, to do that with the old approach is such a monumental effort. To do it when you're using modern cybersecurity solutions It's much easier. So I think ultimately, if folks really focus on zero trust and implementing modern cybersecurity solutions, it really helps drive IT modernization and and give the business more functionality, not less. That makes a lot of sense. But I think there's a point in that which, you know, we keep talking about zero trust in my conversations with so many. I've seen people take zero trust, take the term and what's been defined by NIST and by all these organizations and somewhat manip- not manipulate, they adjust the term to meet their needs and say, I've met zero trust. Well, okay, hold on. There are some suppliers out there that have also, in that regard, I'll say manipulated <laughs> right? the term to meet their technology. From your perspective, you know, when you look at your, your former role, zero trust meant what to you? Default, deny, least privilege, only getting to, at least from the firewall perspective, only having access to that port that the application needs to function, nothing more, no direct access. I also think that uh, part of the big issue, like you said, Pam, is that vendor misinformation. When obviously the executive order came out, vendors who had no part in being in security at all or have a security capability try to jump on that bandwagon. At least when I was on the other side at CDC, you get inundated with vendor calls, emails, I mean, all day, every day. So it's really hard to see the difference between, hey, Zscaler's emailing me, but so is XYZ and everybody else. So who do I believe? I really think number one, 
CISA has done a great job. The cybersecurity maturity model that or zero trust maturity model that they recently released in draft format will help organizations hopefully see a little clearer and uh, help them define their security strategy, zero trust strategy. So yeah, it's, it's definitely, uh, I feel the pain that I'm sure that they're experiencing right now. And it's got to be very difficult. I would say, I guess, last word of advice is pilot solutions, test them. Don't take the marketing information, actually engage the vendors after you do your own market research and actually test it out. That sounds like an updated version of trust, but verify, right? Right. It's exactly it. What is your vision of the future of zero trust from a public sector context? It's a very good question. I really think zero trust is a journey, and I think it's going to be multiple years before it evolves enough to the point where we could we could say that uh, it has had an impact on reducing events, reducing ransomware incidents, you know, things of that nature. My future for zero trust is embracing what what is out today and just trying to help agencies understand how it is achievable. Sounds good. Well, and it is, it is key. It's a journey. It is achievable. Also conversations I have on a daily basis is people start to shut down in their brains because they think it's so overwhelming. They know what they know today, right? right? What they don't know is difficult. And sometimes it's hard to understand where to start, but start somewhere, I think is the key message. And although you're looking at a platform change, some of it will be in phases, some of it will be potentially tactical. So look at those little pieces and start somewhere, right? So you can move on that zero trust journey. That's a great message. Start now. You're never going to get there if you haven't already started, right? So start today and and build on it. Well, listen, this has been great. Thank you so much, Danny, for joining Lisa and I, and we look forward to possibly having you on future conversations and podcasts. Absolutely. Thanks, everybody. Great talking to you. Cheers. Thanks for listening to Cloudy with a Chance of Trust. Check back with your podcast provider regularly for more episodes. You can find Lisa Lorenzen and Pam Kubiatowski on the CXO Revolutionaries website at revolutionaries.cscaler.com or on LinkedIn. Statements by Zscaler podcasters and guests are informational only and should never be construed as legal advice. You should consult with your legal advisor on matters related to you or your business. Zscaler makes no warranties, express, implied, or statutory as to the content of this podcast, and it is provided as is. Content on this podcast may contain forward-looking statements that are current as of the date of recording and subject to change. These statements are subject to the safe harbor provisions created by the Private Securities Litigation Reform Act of 1995. Full legal disclaimers are available at revolutionaries.zscaler.com. Copyright 2021.